0: Keys apparently someone is lost. I, I belong to Jesus. That's the group of people, the Romans 2. In chapter 1, he says to his readers, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And we belong to him not just for now, but forever, for eternity. We're looking today in Romans chapter 2 at verses 1 through 16. The last part of chapter one, which we looked at last week, we saw the justice of God's wrath being revealed against pagans, those who are openly moral, immoral, and degenerate in their living. Our text today deals with the moral sinner instead of the immoral sinner. That is, this is the self-righteous one. The the do-gooder, as someone puts it, who condemns the immoral while excusing his own guilt. Probably the Jew is directly in mind in these verses, but not exclusively. Certainly when we come to verse 17, he's talking to the Jews, he addresses them. And most commentators think that he's probably referring to the Jews in the verses that we'll read today. But what is said here does not refer exclusively to Jews, because self-righteousness is an attitude that is known among Jews and Gentiles. We want to keep in mind, too, as we read our text, that the theme of this part of Romans is not salvation. We are not learning in these verses how we can be saved. We are learning, rather, how badly we need to be saved. The theme in these verses is that of sin, and particularly God's judgment upon sin. You will notice that the theme of the judgment of God is found several times in our text today as we'll read it. You follow along, please, as we begin reading in verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are stirring up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place, that is, this judgment will take place, on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares." This is a heavy theme that we look at this morning. It's one that Satan does not appreciate, to say the least, as we talk about the judgment of God. But it's a significant theme, and one that all of us need to understand. I'd like for us to bow in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Lord, as we come to your inerrant revelation, and look at these verses, which deal with this important topic. I pray that you will be our teacher. There are things here that we could never grasp on our own. And I pray the Holy Spirit will quicken this tongue and the ears of each of us so that we may understand your burden for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What is taking place in this part of Romans is God proving the worthiness of all men for his judgment. The text before us today teaches us several principles of God's judgment. You'll find those principles listed on the outline you received in your worship folder this morning, and I encourage you to follow along on that list as we think about them. The principles of God's judgment... What are they? How will God judge? Well, we see at least uh, five principles here that we want to examine. The first principle is this, and it's found in verses 1 through 4. God's judgment is according to what? To truth. That's right. Man's judgment is not very often according to truth. But God's judgment can be nothing else but according to truth, because he is truth. Now, there are four simple facts about this that we see in these four verses. The first fact is this, that this judgment according to truth is certain. I want you to notice he says in verse 2, We know that God's judgment is based on truth. We know a couple of things here. First, that God's judgment is coming. Secondly, that God's judgment, when it comes, will be according to truth. That will be the manner of its execution. It will be based on reality, not fairy tales. We know this. This is the same verb that we find in chapter 8, verse 28, in that familiar verse. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know that, don't we? Just as surely as we know Romans 8.28, we should know Romans chapter 2, when it says we know that God's judgment is coming and that it's according to truth. A lawyer who is arguing his case before the judge is limited by the judge to the facts. If he gets straying off in some direction, the other attorney can object And the judge can call the attorney who's speaking back to the facts of the case. Because you see, the judge and the jury are not interested in peripheral things. They will make their decision on the truth. What are the facts of the case? And you see, that's the way God's judgment is. When he judges each of us, it will be according to the facts, not according to our intentions, not according to what we wished had happened. But God's judgment is based upon truth. What did happen? What is the truth? What is the reality of this person's life? That will be revealed at the judgment seat. The second fact I notice about this judgment according to truth is that it therefore leaves every man inexcusable before God because all are guilty of the same sins before him. He says, you... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. That does not mean they do the same identical acts, necessarily, but they do the same kinds of things, as mentioned here in chapter 1, in that rather gross list of sins that we examined closely last week. He says, you who judge the immoral pagans because of their degradation, aren't you able to see that you yourselves are guilty of similar sins? If you have enough knowledge of right and wrong to condemn them, then you have enough knowledge to know that you're sinners too and need to repent of your sins. So when you condemn them, you are condemning yourself. That's his point. All men are inexcusable before God. Oh, we are a nation and a people who love to use excuses. We do it at school, we do it at church, we do it at home, we do it with the bank, we do it at work. Wherever we are, we use excuses. When it comes to God, there are no excuses. The facts of the case will be laid out before him, and we will not be able to frame any excuse on our tongue. The problem is that so many sinners live in a dream world and they think that somehow when they stand before God, God will condemn others who've sinned, but he'll somehow let them by. But that is a fantasy. That is not reality. The reality is that all of us are inexcusable as sinners before God, whether we are immoral or we are moral. We are still sinners who need to be saved. A third fact that I see about this first point, that God's judgment is according to truth, is this, that there's no place for escape from punishment. He says in verse 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? You see, God's patience does not mean that we're going to escape judgment. In fact, in verse 3 he says, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? There are people who think that because God is long-suffering, that somehow God is allowing them to escape punishment. Such is not the case. There is no escaping the judgment of God. One of the commentators Uh, Has suggested that there are four ways that we may escape punishment in this world. For example, one way is that the offense or the crime not be discovered. A person is not punished then, obviously. Barnhouse tells about a time in his early ministry, I think he was only 19 years of age at the time when he was preaching in a meeting somewhere in Pennsylvania, I believe. And uh, after the service, a lady came up to him and asked that she might have a private time with him the next day. And so he went to her house at the appointed hour. And she began to pour out to him something that she had kept secret for decades. She was an old woman at this point. When she was a young woman in a boarding house, there was a man there who had mistreated her. And one night when he came in drunk into his room, she went into his room, While he was in his drunken stupor upon the bed and turned the gas on and then put a rug up against the door and waited until he was dead, the authorities thought he had committed suicide in his drunkenness, but the fact was she had killed him. Her crime was not found out until this time when she was confessing it to this evangelist. She had never been punished for it. Why? Because the crime was never discovered until that time. How many crimes are there that have never been discovered and people escape punishment because of that? Another reason a person may escape punishment is because of the statute of limitations. The time runs out when he can be held accountable by the court or he may get out of the court's jurisdiction. He may be held accountable in the state of Minnesota, for example, but go to another state where he can't be held accountable or go to another nation for he can't be brought back. So you see, in that way, though he may commit a crime, he may escape because of a time limitation or because of getting out of the jurisdiction of the court. A third way that is possible to escape punishment is for a mistake to be made in the legal process, and therefore, on the basis of a technicality, for a person to escape punishment of which He's worthy. In this age, this is much too common, isn't it? People escape the punishment they deserve because of some small error that was committed either in the arrest or in the process of trial. And finally, a person may escape punishment if he somehow escapes custody, perhaps he escapes prison, and then flees. He's able then to escape the punishment that was pronounced upon him, which he deserved. But I want you to notice that those are the only ways a person can escape punishment, and none of them applies to God's judgment. If we think about the offense not being discovered, we should remind ourselves that there is no crime that God does not know. Every crime against his holiness, that is, every sin that has ever been committed in deed or word, is known to God. We can't escape on that account. If we think that somehow we will get beyond the jurisdiction of God, just where in the universe do we think we're going to go? He's the eternal God, are we going to go beyond the the limit of a time statute? And then if we think a mistake is going to be made in the legal processes, we're brought before God, we're fooling ourselves because God's judgment is according to truth. No mistakes made. And then do we think that somehow we're going to escape the eternal fires of damnation and be free from them and escape into God's universe and hide? That's a foolish thought. You see, there is no possible escape from the judgment of God, and that's why in Hebrews 2 it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Then there's a fourth fact that we see about this judgment that's according to truth, and that is that it is preceded by God's goodness. God does not strike the sinner quickly. God is a God of mercy and of patience and of long suffering. He tolerates sinners, giving them opportunity to repent. God's judgment, which does eventually come, is preceded by his kindness. That word kindness or goodness there refers to God's moral goodness. You know, God is good to all men. He's good to believers, yes. But he is good to all men. In his providence, he cares for the sinner as well as the saint. And then it says that not only is he kind, but he is tolerant. The word there means that he holds back. He delays what should come because of his tolerance with sinners. And then he uses the word patience. Patience is similar to tolerance, it means slowness in avenging wrong. And he says that God is rich in these things. God does not dribble out his kindness. But God pours it out of his riches. It is an inexhaustible storehouse of kindness and patience and long-suffering. But men refuse this. God intends for the goodness to lead man to repentance, but does it do it? No. It only brings him to greater ingratitude, it seems. Man refuses to repent in the face of God's goodness. And in verse 5, he goes on to say, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. That's the response of man to God's goodness and God's kindness and God's patience. It is stubbornness. It is hardness of heart. It is a rejection of God's mercy. James Stifle says, the blackest sin is not righteousness violated, but mercy despised. And that's the sinner, the one who shows contempt for, who who looks down upon the goodness and the patience of God. Someone also said, to despise mercy is to condemn one's own soul. Why is that? Because there is no way of salvation apart from mercy. And when one rejects God's mercy, he is left only to God's judgment. That's the point here. God's judgment is according to truth. The second principle of judgment that we see is found in verse 5. That the judgment of God is accumulating because of stubbornness. That is, as man rejects the mercy and the kindness of God, he simply accumulates and piles up the wrath of God. He doesn't escape it at all. He is simply putting it away. The picture here is like someone who saves for a rainy day. It's like a person who puts away money for retirement, looking up to that day when he will need it in order to live. So every chance he gets, he's putting some in a savings account or in the IRA and insurance policy, and he stores it up a little bit at a time so that then he'll get what's coming to him. But you see, that's the picture here. When a person despises the mercy of God, all he is doing is storing up God's wrath tucking it away into his life until that day come when he'll get what's coming to him. It's an awful picture. Failure to repent and stubbornness of heart. The ignoring of God's goodness leads to accumulated, multiplied judgment. It is a piling up of the wrath that is due. Dr. Barnhouse calls these people the misers of God's wrath. And how aptly that describes what is said here. That day that's in view is the day of the final judgment of God. He says you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. There are those who have the idea that when a sinner dies that God immediately judges him. Now there's a sense in which that is true because when a sinner dies he is immediately confined in Hades in torment and suffering, in fire. But he has not yet faced his judgment. He is simply confined there waiting for judgment to come. Because judgment will come upon all sinners at one day. That doesn't mean 24 hours but it means one event, one period. And when is that? Well, read about it over in Revelation chapter 20. It's called there the great white throne judgment. It's a time of judgment that comes completely at the end of history. After everything has been done that's going to be done in time, God brings sinners before him for judgment. Question. Why does God do that? Why doesn't God judge each person the moment he dies? The answer is, because even after a sinner dies, he continues to store up wrath for his day of judgment. How is that? Take, for example, the infamous dictator Adolf Hitler. Let's suppose that God gave him his final judgment in 1945 when he committed suicide in that bunker in Berlin. Would Hitler have gotten what he deserved at that point in time? No. Because the the suffering and the wickedness that he created and oversaw is still being played out in the world today. And so God is waiting until every bit of that wickedness has taken place so that at the end of time, Adolf Hitler can stand before him and receive the full measure of his judgment. The same is true of the drunken father, for example, who mistreats his wife and children and leads them in the wickedness and sin. His judgment does not come at the end of his life, nor of his children's lives, but at the end of time, when the full wickedness of his drunkenness and his sin can be measured out as it impacted every succeeding generation. And the storehouse of God's wrath at that point will be opened up and all of it will come out on him. You see, that's the judgment of God. It is accumulating every day of the world, every day of history. It piles up as though a man were storing away treasure A man stores away wrath when he rejects and despises the mercy of God. Each lost sinner will spend eternity reviewing again and again the whole picture of his life. Because it will all be brought before him. The regrets. The things missed out on. The deeds done of wickedness. All of these will haunt the sinner in hell forever. How many are deceived, thinking somehow they're going to get by. That surely, though God will have to condemn others because of sin, they have not sinned enough to be sent to hell. My friend, one sin, one sin is enough to send a person into hell. One sin is an offense against the holiness of God. And God cannot allow one sin in his presence. The fact is that none of us are guilty of but one sin, but of multiplied, multiplied sins that accumulate through our lives and through the lives of our descendants. The third principle of judgment is found in verses 6 through 11, where he says that the judgment of God is according to works. It's important for you to understand that these verses do not teach that we are saved by works one could take some verses out of context here and and teach that but he'd be violating the principle of the interpretation of God's word notice that he says God will give to each person according to what he's done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality he will give eternal life Now, some people would say, well, it means there if I do good and I seek glory and honor and immortality, God's going to give me eternal life because of that. That's not the point. What he's talking about here is the fruit of a genuine salvation experience. He's dealing here not with the inward presence or absence of faith. He's dealing with the things done. Do you see that? He's talking about the works. God's going to judge according to the works of a person's life person is saved by faith it's an inner thing but that's not the point here the point here is that sin will be evidenced by the works of a person's life and god will judge according to those works and he's talking about the totality of a person's life not the incidents that may occur in it god is interested in the in the direction in the bent of a person's life not the occasional acts let me give you a couple of examples of that If God were to judge David on the basis of his adultery, his deceit to cover that up, and his his murder, then David would be lost. But you see, God knows that the bent, the direction of David's life, was not described by those events that took place, but rather by a heart that sought after God. He did not live perfectly. None of us do. There were incidents in his life that were sinful, and tragic. But God judged David because the direction, the bent of his life was toward God. Why was that? Because he had trusted in the Lord. And most of the works of David's life were works of righteousness and praise to God, though there were incidents that were a disgrace. He will be judged according to the works, the totality of the works of his life. On the other hand, let's take Judas, for example. Judas gave to the poor but that was not the direction and the bent of his life. The direction of his life was covetousness. He was a thief. He betrayed Christ. And so the direction of Judas' life was one of disobedience, away from God. Although he did something good like give to the poor occasionally. It's not the incidents that God is judging. It's the totality of the life. The accumulation of the life, the character as well as the conduct is brought before God and God judges according to works. Really what is taught in these verses is simply this, that when when the Lord is in a person's life, it makes a difference in how he lives. And that difference is seen in the works. If he is not in a person's life, then his life will be self-seeking. He will reject truth and follow evil. Consequently, he will receive wrath and anger and trouble and distress. On the other hand, when the Lord is in a person's life, when a person is saved, then it says he will persist in doing good. That doesn't mean he'll be perfectly good, but he will persist in doing good. That is, the direction of his life will be one of continuing in righteousness, though he may fall and sin occasionally. He'll be one who will see glory and honor and immortality, and God will give him eternal life. Why? Because of his works? No. Because he's, he's trusted Christ, and Christ is in the life making a difference. We are living in a day when people make a cheap profession of faith, and they, some of them pray and ask Jesus to come into their heart, whatever that may mean to them. And then they go out and live like the devil. And they say, what difference does it make? Because I asked Jesus into my life. person who has that kind of an attitude is probably not saved whatever his outward profession may have been the works of a person's life evidence what's truly inside a person who professes to be a christian and who looks back to some day perhaps as a child and he prayed some prayer who lives an immoral adulterous life and persists in that kind of a life is a person who is deceived thinking he's saved he's not saved Because when Jesus Christ is in the life, he transforms it. The direction of the life is different. The works of the life are righteous. Though he may occasionally sin, as I've said. That's what God is judging. The totality of the life. The works of the life. It makes no difference if one is Jew or Gentile. That's not the point. The point is, the works of the life and what those works evidence, is the presence or the absence of Christ. There's a fourth principle as we move ahead quickly, in verses 11 to 15, which is simply this, that God's judgment is apart from partiality. <clears throat> in other words, the outward religious standing is insignificant with God. He says, God does not show favoritism, God is not concerned whether one is Jew or Gentile. All will be judged, although by different standards. Now what do I mean by that? Well, simply this. A man is judged by God according to the light that he has. The Jew, because he had the law of Moses, will be judged by the law of Moses. The Gentile who did not have that law will be judged by the light that he did have. And what light is that? Well, he clarifies that. He says it's the light of their conscience. Verses 14 and 15 are parentheses, kind of giving some insight into what he said previously. And he says that a Gentile who does not have the law of Moses, who knows nothing about the Ten Commandments, still has written upon his heart, The basic difference between right and wrong. And he's answerable to God for the decisions that he makes. Sometimes his conscience will excuse him. Sometimes it will will, uh, accuse him. But he will be judged according to the light that he had. And that's why all men are accountable and without excuse before God. Because whether a man has the law of Moses or the law of conscience... He cannot live up to that law perfectly. You see, God set the standard so high, that of perfect righteousness, so that he could show us how greatly we need forgiveness and mercy. That's why the law was given, to bring us to Christ. God's justice is blind. What do I mean by that? Have you ever seen justice as she is depicted she is seen as a, a lady I often wondered why that is, but then that who might have questioned those things? A lady who holds a balance in her hand and she is blindfolded. The blindfold does not represent ignorance. The blindfold means that she is unable to tell whether the person before her is wearing rags or silk. Or whether that person is a Jew or a Gentile, to bring it in the context of our passage here. All that person is interested in is justice. The judge wants justice, and you see, that's where God is. Whether Jew or Gentile, God's judgment is just. It is apart from any partiality. There is no difference with God. When we stand before God, my friend, the label of Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran or whatever makes absolutely no difference. God's judgment is impartial. There are some people who think because they're of one stripe or another that they have an extra inch in heaven. Don't you believe it? Entrance into heaven is not gained by denominational title. Entrance into heaven is gained by mercy and grace that is received by faith. And then finally we see that God's judgment applies to secret things verse 16. He says this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. And so we learn that it's not just the outward works that are brought up at the judgment, it's also the secrets of a person's life. The hidden things are brought out. Or a person may think that he will stand before God and boast, I have never committed adultery. And so God will open the book of secret things and search out the lustful looks and desires. Jesus said, A man who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. He's guilty of adultery. A hidden thing. No one would know that. But God will point it out at the judgment, it'll be exposed for everybody. A person may think to stand before God and say, I have never stolen a thing in my life. And yet God will open the book of secret things about that individual and, and will show the covetous desire and the envious spirit. Invisible, you see, to us. Not seen outwardly, but God sees it and God will expose it. That's what it means here. The hidden things, the things that we hide behind, hide down in our lives, behind a masquerade, those things God will bring up and set in the open for all of heaven to see. And a man will be judged according to his secret things, as well as his outward works. You see, God's judgment doesn't miss a thing. And we shouldn't think it strange that God is able to do that. We, by our puny little inventions, are able to see secret things. We have organs in our bodies that we've never seen, but we can get an x-ray machine and take a look inside our bodies and see the hidden things, can't we? A pilot of an airplane can fly through a cloud, and though he can't see anything there inside that cockpit except his instruments, the radar enables him to see what's all around him. So he sees the storm ahead or that other airplane. It sees the hidden things. Sonar tells us what's on the ocean floor, though we cannot plumb those depths with our eyes. It's hidden to us. But we see it. And so it is, my friend, with God's judgment. It is hidden to men, but nothing is hidden to God. All things are made manifest before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is God's judgment. Now I want you to notice that it's Jesus Christ himself who is the judge. Over in John chapter 5, he explains why he is the judge. It's because he is the Son of Man, Jesus liked to use that title for himself. The Son of Man. And what it emphasizes is the fact that he is a man. A perfect man, as well as God. And it will be as sinless, glorified man that he will stand on the judgment seat and judge men. There will be no man who will be able to say, but... You don't understand what I went through. Because you see, Jesus was tempted in every way like sinners. And yet he was without sin. He will judge as a man. Sinless, glorified man. All men will someday see him face to face. And whether we see him as judge or as savior depends upon what we do with him in this life. When your eyes close in death, will you see him as your Savior welcoming you home? Or will your eyes behold one who will be your judge? You make the decision. If you are here today without Jesus Christ as your Savior, and your attitude towards God's goodness and God's mercy is one of spite, one of resistance, one of contempt, then let me give you a suggestion. If you are putting off God, if you are rejecting God's wooing to you, then let me make, give you some advice. My advice to you would be to live it up in this life and to go out and sin all that you can. As it says someplace, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. My advice to you is to make the most of this life because, my friend, that's all there is for you. Because after this life comes judgment and separation from God and hopelessness and hell. And if you're going to have any joy in your existence at all, that little pleasure you have for a season had better be enjoyed in this life because there's nothing coming except judgment. Think about that. And then see if you want to continue despising God's mercy by which he's pleading with you to come to the Savior. God's judgment is according to absolute justice so that we will see how great our need is for mercy. Someday we will meet him and we do well now to prepare Again, Donald Gray Barnhouse tells the story of uh, an occasion when he was a young man and hearing an evangelist. He does not remember the name of the evangelist, nor most of what he said, but there was one statement that the evangelist made that stuck in his mind. The evangelist was preaching away, using the text from Amos that says, Prepare to meet thy God. And the one statement in his message that stuck with Barnhouse through the years was this. The greatest reason you should prepare to meet your God is because you must meet your God. When you meet Him, how will it be with your soul? Let's pray. God, we thank you that in mercy and in kindness and in riches of patience, you deal with us. We thank you that you lead us to repentance. God, there are some who are listening to my voice today who are resisting or perhaps who have neglected to this point this matter of their soul salvation. Help that one or those few here today to understand the dire danger of their soul, the eternal damnation that waits as they now store up wrath to be revealed someday. God, how thankful I am that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So whether in our deeds or in our secret things, those sins are forever washed away and can never be brought to the account of the Christian. I rejoice today in that truth and praise you for it. But for that one whose record is still stained deeply with sin, I pray today that there will be repentance and faith in Christ that will save that one. In Jesus' name, amen.